Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezra. And just to set the stage a bit for where we are in the story, uh, the Israelites have just returned to Jerusalem from exile, and they're going about rebuilding the temple. So the story picks up. Then they, that is the Israelites, gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. It doesn't take a lot to get me to cry, like hardly anything. William, my boyfriend, will FaceTime me, and I will answer the phone with puffy red eyes, and he'll ask, were you watching Instagram videos of soldiers returning home from war again? (laughs) Yeah, I'll nod, wiping my eyes. Commercials during the Olympics, I don't stand a chance. Those Canadian tire ads, like with the, the one where the, you think that the dad is teaching his daughter to ski, only it's actually the daughter teaching the dad, or the kid who stumbles while curling, and everyone else comes out to sweep for him, I am undone. Videos of rescued animals, a particularly emotional or moving movie scene, a stirring moment in a musical piece, just the right worship song in a service, any family member being reunited with a loved one they haven't seen in ages, it does not take long before I am sniffing into my mask or hugging my decently perturbed cat for comfort. And I'm okay with that. I am a sappy and sentimental human being. I have embraced this, and I wear my tears proudly. 
I am less good with tears that come from a deeper place, a place of grief or fear or heartache. I don't like showing those tears. I don't like admitting that something is wrong or confronting the truth that something is wrong and I can't do anything about it. If you know the Enneagram, I am a three. I am a achiever. And if something feels off in my life, if I'm feeling sad or anxious or alone or any number of emotions that aren't particularly welcome, I want to fix that to work my way out of it, to get to a place of, if not joy and happiness, at least emotional equilibrium. I think we all have this tendency to some degree or another. We don't like sitting with sadness. We don't like letting on to the world that everything is not okay in our lives, that we don't have it all together, that our lives aren't perfect. We don't like admitting that this is true to ourselves. Or sometimes I think we feel that we don't quite deserve our grief. Who am I to feel sad because I moved away from my closest friends when there are people grieving the death of a spouse? Who are we to feel grief at all the events that we've had to give up these last two years? when there are countries and communities that couldn't have ever fathomed of having such events in the first place. But grief is a stubborn thing. It persists. It doesn't go away when we want it to, and it's there when we think it shouldn't be. So we try to push it away, to shove it down, to ignore it, We fill our lives with distractions, with busyness, numbing ourselves, filling up the emotional space inside of us with anything that isn't the pain or heartache or sadness clutching at our heartstrings. In his book, A Letter of Consolation, Henry Nouwen wrote this about the death of his mother. He wrote about how for months he didn't shed a single tear. He writes... It seemed as if the voices around me were saying, you have to keep going. Life goes on. People die, but you must continue to live, to work, to struggle. The past cannot be recreated. Look at what is ahead. I was obedient to these voices. But I knew then that this would not last if I really took my mother and myself seriously. That last sentence is a profound thing. Grief, allowing ourselves to grieve, to sit with sadness, to give grief a room in our lives for as long as it requires lodging, is to take a thing seriously is to take love and goodness and beauty and joy seriously. Feeling grief at the loss of some good thing or some good person is a way of naming what is good in the world, expressing our love for that thing or that person. Grief happens because goodness happens, because we know what goodness looks like. 
and because the loss or absence of that goodness is a deeply felt ache. So as we talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in this series, and that one of the ways we do so is by weeping, we're not saying that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to let the tears flow constantly, and that only those who can cry are true disciples. But rather, that following Jesus means holding space for grief, right alongside all the good and joyful things that happen in our lives. Because just like acknowledging wonder, which Pastor Tom will talk about next week, acknowledging grief is a way of orienting ourselves towards God, towards his goodness, towards his love. A good example of what this looks like is found in the book of Ezra. It's called Ezra, but the first six chapters take place well before Ezra steps onto the scene with the first wave of Jews returning home from exile. Now the Hebrew people, the Jews, were taken into exile in 586 BC when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia overthrows the Babylonians, and the following year he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. And so the beginning of Ezra follows the first wave of exiles to do so, to return home under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the priest Joshua. They return to their hometowns and to Jerusalem, and when they come to Jerusalem, they donate gold and silver and fabric so that the temple, the place where the glory of God dwells among his people in a profound and pointed way, that this temple can be rebuilt. The first thing they do is build the altar so they can make sacrifices to God once again, and then they lay the foundation of the temple walls. They hire stonemasons and carpenters. They enlist the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring in great cedar logs from Lebanon. They put the Levites, the priestly clan within the Hebrew people, in charge of building and overseeing the temple project. And before too long, the foundations are laid. The first glimpses of what this temple will look like can be seen. The people can start to imagine, to dream, to hope. So they celebrate. They bring out the loudest instruments they can find, trumpets and cymbals, and they raise a ruckus. They dance and sing and praise God, giving a great shout of jubilation. But mixed in with the shouting and the celebration and the trumpets and the cymbals is another sound, the sound of weeping. For there are those among the people, those with grayer hairs and lined faces, who remember what the first temple looked like. They remember living in Jerusalem, a city of glory and honor and splendor and beauty. They remember worshiping God in the grandeur of Solomon's temple. They remember the uncertainty leading up to the days of exile, the fear as invading armies swarmed through the city, 
the calamity and mayhem of being carted off, leaving everything they knew behind. They remember the long nights of weeping among the exiles, the spiritual turmoil, the questioning, where was their God? And now, home at last, it doesn't particularly feel like home. Not all the Jews were taken into exile, and those who remained have rather taken over the place. Not to mention the people from surrounding nations who have come in and made themselves at home. The returning exiles face anger and opposition from those who were quite content with their absence. They're building the temple, wondering each morning if some angry and hostile group will have destroyed their progress overnight. This isn't Jerusalem as the people remembered it. This is not a triumphant return. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so the people weep. Filled with the grief of the moment, and the grief of all the years past, they weep. And the people who are celebrating don't tell them to hush. They don't ask with incredulity in their voices, how can you be sad on a day like today? And the people who are weeping don't scoff at the celebration. They don't snap in judgment, how can you be glad in the face of it all? The sound of wailing mingles with the sound of shouting and laughter so the two are indistinguishable. It is a ruckus, a chaotic cacophony of noise, voices lifted before God in utter and complete honesty. Because the truth of it is that grief and joy coexist in our lives. Joy is not felt only when grief is held at bay. The presence of grief does not negate all the moments of joy in our lives. We live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Christ has come, Christ is coming. The kingdom is here, the kingdom is yet coming in fullness. And in that in-between, both loss and hope, both grief and joy are emotions, experiences, practices that are true, that are necessary, that are welcomed and blessed by God. To deny grief is to deny a part of ourselves that is made and loved by God. It's to deny the love that God weaves into the world out of his own love. And it's to miss an opportunity to experience the full love of God that surrounds us and holds us and supports us, even as we experience a grief so devastating it threatens to undo us. When we are at the end of our rope, God is yet there, present, faithful. This is what the writer of Ezra tells us abundantly in just these six verses, as he echoes older stories. 
The arrival of those building materials from Lebanon was first promised to the exiles by the prophet Isaiah. And so here God's word is coming true. He is faithful to his promises. Work on the temple, the author tells us, begins in the second month of the year, which is the same month when work on Solomon's temple began. The description of the celebrations in Ezra closely echoes the words describing the celebrations of King David in front of the ark as he prepares for the building of the first temple. And at the heart of both of these celebrations, at the heart of this one and in David's, is this repeated line, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. The people proclaim, and the author of Ezra emphasizes that the God who, is, who was present at the building of the first temple is present at the building of this temple. It is he who makes all of this possible. It is he who is in control of all things. It is he who brought the Jews into exile, but also he who brings them home again. He is faithful, and he is good, and he is present to his people, present in their joy and their celebration, and present in their grief. Grief orients us to a faithful God. Holding space for grief in our lives means we're also holding space for the belief, the hope that God weeps too that God cries for a world that is not as he created it to be, that is broken by sin and evil. We don't know why God doesn't step in and make things new right now. But we do know that death and illness and broken relationships and loss breaks God's heart. After all, even knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus wept at the news of his death. And if we take the original text at face value, he didn't so much weep as rage because the world was not as it should be. Speaking of rage, making space for grief in our lives also tamps down our propensity towards outrage. We live very much in a outrage culture. Some outrage is good. There is much in the world to be outraged by, to lament, to grieve, but we as a society don't handle outrage very well. The big lamentable issues in the world feel out of our control, so we try desperately to control them. We take it upon ourselves to police people's movements and words and actions, all in the name of progress and righteousness and goodness, defending what we believe needs to be defended. And so we flare up and we lash out at people and we make rude signs denigrating our leaders and we post snarky comments on Facebook. We live in outrage. The last year or so of my life in the States was marked by outrage. There was, I felt, much to be outraged by between politics and COVID and how people were behaving in regards to both. But it wasn't just obvious things that would cause me outrage, that would fill me with this sense of anger. 
Just seeing a shirt with an American flag on it would send me spiraling into judgments about that person. Jeep stickers of, in God we trust, had me muttering under my breath, yeah, but I bet you and I worship different gods. And in August, sitting on a lawn chair in downtown Grand Haven for the Coast Guard parade, I actually half yelled at Bill Heisinger, the congressman, as he drove by, so are you gonna open the border anytime soon? It was not one of my finer moments. And it gave me pause. I didn't like this outrage that just sat with me all the time, clouding everything. But it wasn't until I met with a spiritual director and was talking through it all that I realized that underneath all the outrage was something else, grief. Grief that I hadn't been able to see my family in a year and a half. Grief that I was stuck in a country that didn't feel like home. Grief that my church was starting to show evidence of fissures and polarization. Grief that the church at large was not bearing a particularly good witness. I had to give space to the grief, to be sad, to lament, and in doing so, to hand all of those things over to God and say, I can't fix this. My outrage won't fix this. Help. There is much to be outraged by. But if the church is to be a prophetic witness to a society beset by outrage culture, it can't, says Tish Harrison Warren, just mimic that culture. It has to learn to weep together, to hold space for grief, to listen for the fear and the sadness underneath all the anger that people are spewing at each other, and in doing so, to ultimately trust God together. What does this look like? It looks like corporate lament, prayers of sadness, acknowledgement in worship that not all is as it should be, crying out to God to do something, to be present, to be faithful. It looks like taking deep breaths in conversation and asking questions that dig deeper into a person's emotions and experiences instead of responding with a snap judgment or a quip that gives us the upper hand. It looks like coming alongside one another as we experience grief of all kinds and bearing the presence of a faithful God to one another. We're actually talking through, as a staff and a consistory, we're talking through a tangible way to do just that. We'd like to start a grief ministry team a group of people who intentionally come alongside people who have experienced loss and who can check in with them periodically, providing resources from the Stevens ministry, just being a listening presence as grief unfolds and morphs and yet abides. We're hoping this team can come alongside consistory as we minister to one another, offering support in this particularly focused way. And we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. 
But I invite you, if just that idea niggles something inside of you, to pray about whether this might be something into which God is inviting you. And if you are experiencing grief of any kind, I invite you to hold space for that grief and bring it before God because he is a faithful God. He is a loving God. He knows you. He knows your joys and your delights and your longings and your sadness and says to you, I can hold all of this. I can hold you in all of this. And though there is mystery now, though we wait now, we do so in the sure and certain hope that a new creation is coming, a new Jerusalem far more glorious than any of the exiles could have imagined. A new Jerusalem is coming where there will be no more sadness or sorrows or sickness or tears. Only a people gathered together before the throne of a faithful God whose love endures forever. Would you pray with me? So Lord God, be present to us. Be present to us in our grief. When our grief is overwhelming and all-consuming, when our grief is a dull, constant ache, when our grief is known, when our grief is hidden, surround us with your faithful love and hold us. Help us to acknowledge and make space for everything we feel, bringing it before you, speaking honestly about the hard and the good, the sad and the joyful, living in this paradox, in the tension of these two realities. And help us, your people, Bear your presence to one another. Help us make space in our lives to listen well to one another, to walk alongside one another, to love big and well and faithfully. For you, God, are faithful. Help us to rest in your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.